Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the cost of the eviction moratorium. And Richard, I wanted to talk to you about this today because it's the subject of your most recent column for Defining Ideas, but it's the subject of that column partially because it was the subject of your recent testimony before the the New York State Advisory Committee to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. So there are a couple of layers to this, one about economics, one about racial discrimination, some other aspects of this that we should go into. But before we even get to the aspect of this that involves discrimination, let's just talk about the broader principle that's at work here. In the wake of COVID, there have been restrictions placed on the ability of landlords to evict tenants. The argument here being not only that there's this dimension of economic hardship because you have people being thrown out of work through no fault of their own, but also that this was a public health measure. You keep people housed, that helps restrain the spread of the virus. Okay, in a vacuum, certainly seems like a well-intentioned thing to do. As a practical matter, in terms of real-world consequences, does this strike you as sound public policy? I'm very uneasy about this kind of a policy because what happens is you're interfering with a voluntary relationship between two parties. And every time you press on one side of the relationship in order to improve the position of one party, you necessarily hurt somebody on the other side. Uh, But the way in which the economy is organized, it's not just a dyadic relationship sitting in the middle of nothing. There are all sorts of other people who are going to find themselves in difficulty. So if you're a landlord, you will have employees, you will have suppliers, for example, at the very least. And if you cannot connect the rent, how are you going to pay your employees? How are you going to pay your suppliers? If they don't get their particular wages, then they're going to find it hard to maintain their situation. And even if it turns out they could still pay their rent or they're given the moratorium with respect to eviction, that moratorium doesn't give them food to put on the table, transportation, clothing, education, or anything else. Uh, So what happens is this moratorium will probably overall slow down the growth of the economy or increase the rate of its decline more than you would if you had some kind of a voluntary arrangement. And so the reason I'm always very, very crazy about this is that if you could point to somebody who's a net winner from a prospect and ignore everybody else, then it's a policy that you want to do more than ever. People try to take this into account in some way, saying, look, this is only a moratorium, it's a delay, it's not a forgiveness, but there are two things about this. In the interim, the people who are suffering from the delay do not get a delay on their own bill, so they're caught in some kind of a squeeze. And even after the moratorium is over, there's nothing which says that the party who got the benefit from the eviction ruling is going to be able to pay in full the amount of money plus interest uh, during the period of delay. The most obvious and dangerous scenario is somebody decides to move anyhow, they walk out, uh, you can't possibly find them to sue them. So the moratorium turns out to be some kind of a forgiveness, no matter what the law wants to say. And my attitude on these things has generally been 
that when you have bad external situations, that is nobody's fault. Landlords know this as well as tenants, and that probably a renegotiation program rather than a total forgiveness program is preferable, and that you cannot achieve through state intervention. It's going to require some kind of a voluntary arrangement. Why is it that it's credible? Well, if it turns out that a landlord sits there and he has the following choice, evict the tenant today for non-payment of rent, and then take your chances in the market tomorrow, losing rent for several months until you could relet it, perhaps, given the dislocation for everybody else. That's not wildly attractive. If you agree to a rental cut of, say, 25 or 30%, uh, both sides may be better off than they are with the eviction strategy. And it's also, for some tenants, they're still working, their income is rather well. You don't have to give the forgiveness one of the things about this policy is it tends to be overbroad uh, so that the forgiveness goes not only to those people who really do need it, but to some other people who could take advantage of it. This is an old story. Rent control in New York City is known for its ability to finance second homes in Connecticut. Let me ask you about the legal authority for these kinds of actions. A number of states implemented eviction moratoriums early on in the pandemic. After some of those expired, you had the federal government step in with their own during the Trump administration, which has subsequently been extended by the Biden administration. Um, I don't know the details in every state, but this has largely been done through executive action, certainly at the federal level. How strong of a legal basis are these kinds of edicts on? From whence do executives derive that kind of power? Well, I mean, this is a problem which has two dimensions to it. One is the legislative authority uh, being transferred to the executive branch, and the other is whether or not this kind of an arrangement is some kind of a taking. So start at the federal level where the initiative was actually introduced by the CDC on the grounds that it was a health measure. Um, this was attacked on the grounds that the CDC doesn't have any ability to regulate rentals between parties. It has an ability to regulate whether or not you have to fumigate premises of one kind or another, and you cannot take a delegation of one particular kind of power and turn it into a comprehensive uh, mandate to become a housing off every rental property in the United States. And I think at least in one or two places, that kind of an argument is one, and I believe it is correct. When the governors do this, it's a different question, because what happens is most emergency statutes are drafted in an extraordinarily uh, broad fashion, and then the question is, what counts as an emergency? Uh, this is uh, something in which the traditional definition was we have a flood, and when the flood subsides, the emergency turns out to be over. <laughs> Same thing with earthquakes, invasions, and so forth. When you get some kind of a pandemic, uh, it's not clear when this thing ends, but it is pretty clear that an emergency of this sort cannot last for a year. Why is that? Because once it's more than a week or two, there's chances for legislative intervention, administrative review of one kind or another. So unilateralism, I think, becomes much more dangerous than it was. These attacks have been raised in, in a number of states. For the most part, they have failed because the courts have been giving to much much more willing to give deference than I would think under this particular doctrine. In New York State, given Mr. Cuomo's problems with everything else under the sun, um, his emergency authority has been removed. Um, the reason why the emergency authority is so crazy is that after the immediate crisis, you would like to have some kind of a deliberative process with some kind of public input. And as you watch the way these things start to operate, it's always a U.K. issued by some dictator telling you, now you're going to do this, now you're going to do that. 
but there's no public record of justifications for it. There's an appeal to the fact that my commissioner of public health thinks I'm doing the right thing, and he or she is backed by all sorts of other people. This becomes explained to be very dangerously close to autocratic behavior. And generally speaking, the reason we don't like autocratic behavior is that autocrats make a lot of mistakes even when they announce themselves to be well-intentioned. And the level of incompetence that the Cuomo administration put forward was, you know, second to none, uh, maybe second to New Jersey. There's a big bite about that, but the, the death rates start to show this, and it's the kind of unilateralism that creates that sort of situation. Then with respect to the moratorium, uh, there is also a takings issue. The way in which takings law has been divided, I don't believe in this distinction, but it's there, is that there's a very high level of scrutiny given to situations where you either force somebody out of premises which they own or force, allow somebody to force themselves into premises and not to let them take it back. And so what happens is if, in fact, normally you can evict the tenant for non-payment of rent, what's happening is the government is reinserting them into the property. Does that count as a physical taking? I think the answer to that question is yes, but there are two ambiguities here. One is Justice uh, Marshall, when he wrote about this in a case called Loretto, was clearly very uneasy about upsetting modern rent control rules. So he applied this to a box for cable TV that's put on the roof, but he didn't want to apply it to people sitting in a living room from which they've been evicted. So he says that somehow or other the takings doctrine and physical occupation doesn't apply to rent control, which is a linguistic absurdity, but it's one that's had a lot of favor. Uh, so there's going to be that kind of problem. The second kind of problem is even if you admit that it's a physical taking, somebody's going to say, aha, but there's a health justification for this. And that gets you back to exactly the same kind of arguments that you dealt with in connection with the CDC. Is this the way in which you start to deal with health? Or is the health power designed to make sure that people are vaccinated when they go into subways or whatever else it has to do uh, concerning directly with the spread of disease? Modern law tends to say yes, at least it did for a while. Now, as this thing starts to drag on and as regulations become more absurd, uh, people are starting to think otherwise. So, you know, what's an obvious illustration of all of this? You have people who are vaccinated, and then when they move from state to state, you impose quarantines on them. Why do you want to impose quarantine on somebody who's vaccinated? Uh, why do you want to require them to wear masks in particular kinds of places? If you had some doubt about the authenticity of the certificates, maybe it's the case, but that's not what's driving this thing. It's just the notion that somehow or other people who are vaccinated may, may not take, people who are vaccinated may be susceptible to a new strand. And what's so striking about the current response is the level of danger associated with any particular person is probably down in the last two months by a factor of 10, maybe even 100. And the regulations and the rules simply haven't changed to take that into account. Uh, it's a perfect dilemma. On the one hand, if it's high, said, well, we obviously have to keep these things in place. And if it's low, said, well, we obviously have to keep these things in place because otherwise it will return to the high level. Um, so you're seeing this going on. Texas today announced that it was getting rid of some of the spacing regulations, some of the masking regulations. Um, there will still be people who will observe those kinds of concerns, which is perfectly fine by me. But I think, in fact, it's the move in the same direction. One of the ironies, and I'll just mention this about the mask mandate, is I, mean, I lived much of the time in New York City and Chicago. And I would say that mask wearing in the public streets in large cities was over the 95% level. Even I, feeling the social sting from everybody else, would put them on when I thought it was not a particularly wise and necessary thing. And what happens is you start looking at the disease rate. When masks are at their highest, the thing starts to spike. 
Masks reach a peak sometime in late December, early January, and they start going down. Same level of mask wearing. And so the only thing that you can say is if it goes up with mask and down with mask, masks don't have much to do with this. And in fact, if you start looking at the way in which many of these diseases go, uh, what you're seeing here is the normal kind of response. Once the adaptive responses start to take place, we talked about this on this show way back in March of last year about how it happened. And again, the uh, paradigm case is the incredibly rapid rate of decline with the 1918 flu virus, the Spanish flu, so-called, that took place, I think it was in sort of late October and early November of 1918. The dates don't matter that much, but that pattern has come. And so that's what we're seeing now. Why did it not happen earlier? I have my own pet theory, which is when you start to admit people who are known to be sick into nursing homes, which are known to contain vulnerable populations, the more rapid the contact, the more virulent the disease, it's going to leak out of those settings. And so what it's going to do is going to set you on the wrong course. And until you reverse those kinds of things, what you're going to do by public intervention and what happened in those cases, in my judgment, is that you prolong other dangers associated with these operations. It's roughly the equivalent of dealing with AIDS by opening up the, the bathhouses to everybody. That's what you do, substitute in for bathhouses, old age facilities, nursing homes, and so forth, and there's an eerie parallel. Okay, now let me ask you about um, what set this conversation off in the first place, about the, the racial component. The controversy that occasioned your testimony in New York was allegations that there is a systemic racism embedded in the process of these evictions. Can you just map this terrain for us? What is the argument of the people who are making that case, and what is your response to it? Well, the argument for systematic racism in uh, the eviction situation or the foreclosure situation, that is for home ownership, uh, rests on a single proposition that there's a higher rate of eviction or a higher rate of foreclosure amongst minority individuals than there is amongst white individuals. And that disparity is thought to be the uh, conclusive evidence of some kind of systematic discrimination because it's widespread and it's embedded in the social fabric. That's the particular claim. Uh, the question, though, is how this ties into the anti-discrimination laws. And, and at that point, you realize that this claim for disparate impact means that there's no activity in the United States which is not pervaded with racial discrimination, no matter what the intentions of any people who are involved in this. Uh, so what happens is the traditional view of racial discrimination said, look, if you have two people who are identical in all relevant, ex ex you know, ex in all relevant conditions and all relevant relationships, and you treat them differently solely because of their race, that's a form of redistribution that harms one and holds another. Whether this is a social loss is actually kind of tricky, uh, because if you've got two identical people and A gets the job and not B, uh, the gains and losses are about the same. And indeed, as I argued in my book on Forbidden Grounds nearly 30 years ago, if there's one group that's constantly trying to pick the uh, white people as opposed to the black people, a smart employer in a competitive market will look to the other tail and say, I would rather have the top of the black pile uh, than the bottom of the white pile, and you'll start to see some kind of equilibration. This is not a novel argument with me. The late Gary Becker made it in his PhD thesis on discrimination, which he published in 1957. 
Uh, so you're going to say disparate treatment. Let's assume – I don't think it's a social waste in the same way many people do. There's no monopoly power here. Let's suppose that it happened. Nobody claims that there's any disparate treatment in these particular cases. The landlords themselves are often members of minority groups. Uh, the same rules are applied to white tenants as to black tenants. The only difference is that it turns out that the rate of evictions are higher in the two groups using these new principles. So the second question is, can you treat this as a traditional disparate impact case? And this is associated with a famous 1971 case called Griggs against Duke Power. And this was a question about prediction and testing. What happened is the Duke Power Company had, in many of its divisions, been explicitly segregated under segregation. Remember, this is down in, I think, either North or South Carolina. It doesn't much matter. And what they decided to do is to get rid of that. And then what they had to do is to put some tests into place. And they picked a series of professionally developed tests. And they also picked a, a basically a diploma equivalent for a high school degree and used them. And they had been written into the original 1964 statute some kind of an exception for professionally developed tests. And, you know, the Duke Power Company thought that it was playing with the law. Harry Blackman, in his opinion, I think it was Blackman, but it doesn't matter again, um, basically mangled the particular statute. Um, and what happened is, no, that was not the way it was. I think it was actually Warren Burger, but it doesn't matter. And so what they said is uh, these tests were used in an improper fashion, and they then said you could only use tests like this for predictive purposes if you could show a business necessity to do so, very strongly defined. And most predictive tests are better than random in terms of their operation, but there are other ways that you can start to do it. So essentially what has happened in the United States is that the use of predictive tests which have racial impact is by and large barred except under truly extraordinary circumstances. This does not mean that you can't test people in advance. And indeed, as you start moving into higher occupations, what happens is an employer says, we're going to hire you to see if you could be a mathematical analysis on um, being able to figure out price movements. What they do is they take a case from their file and they ask you to solve it. Then if you do well, you get the job. If you do badly, you don't. Uh, this has got to be job-related because it's the job. So what happens is that for firemen, policemen, people coming into the workforce and sort of semi-skilled jobs, what they tended to do is to give generalized intelligence tests, which had some predictive value, and those things are completely gone. And it's extremely tight. So it doesn't affect the sort of the upper crust of American labor markets, but it does large portions of a middle America. And they said is the predictions could be erroneous, you can't do it. That's not what's at stake here. There's no tests that are involved at all. The only question you have to ask is whether or not somebody is behind in their rent in order to run an eviction. And there's a perfect correlation between non-payment of rent and being behind in rent. So the disparate impact now is that people essentially have differential failure rates. Well, you could try to find explanations for it in the column. I just tossed out one piece of evidence, which is widely known, which is saving rates amongst black and white citizens in the United States are different. Uh, that is, white individuals tend to save more as a group than black individuals do. I don't mean this as a stereotype. There are obviously many white individuals who do not save as much as some black individuals. But what it means is that you have two kind of bell-shaped distributions, and they have different means, and they may well have different variances as well. And so if it turns out you have one group which systematically has lower wealth and reserves, they're going to be less able to pay the rent, and they are therefore going to be more likely to be evicted under these circumstances. That does not strike me as having anything to do 
uh, with racial discrimination of any sort. It strikes me as having an independent explanation. And in fact, there may be other explanations that one can start to give. What are the ages of children, the ages of the tenants, and so forth, to figure out what's going on. But those descriptive elements I don't think are really relevant here because the only question you're trying to ask is can you use a disparate impact test to uncover some sneaky and hidden disparate treatment kinds of situations? And by assumptions, everybody agrees that there's no disparate treatment. And these tests are not designed to flesh out those cases of hidden and secret differences. They're simply designed to uh, treat the situation as being unacceptable because of the differential rates. Look, there are differential rates in education. How many black mathematicians, PhDs are there every year and so forth? And so if you follow this definition, this country is going to be perpetually mired in a form of racial discrimination, which means that you can completely ransack the economy in order to correct something which, to my judgment, is not a wrong. And I believe that civil rights commissions uh, are not only supposed to find discrimination where it does exist, they're supposed to deny that it exists in those cases where it doesn't exist. I think it's an extremely important function of these organizations to say, well, we've looked at this situation, and we don't think it's a matter of discrimination. We think it's a matter of legitimate market behavior. I don't think the U.S. Civil Rights Commission or its advisory groups have been very willing to make that kind of finding very often in recent years, and I think it's a very serious mistake. If it turns out that you are now condemning large numbers of individuals for very bad forms of behavior, when the evidence doesn't support it, it's a real disservice. It's almost like a kind of group defamation. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at definingideas at hoover.org. And if you enjoy the podcast, please rate the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.